This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. I'm your host, Carly Kutnick, and today we do not have a co-host, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right to our guest. Today, we are welcoming Jaden Heronica. Am I saying that correct? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. To the show. And she is one of our new ambassadors for Artemis and is part of the 2023 cohort. So how are you doing today, Jaden? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? It's a, it's a good it's a good day. I can't complain. It's beautiful outside. We've had a lot of rain. It's, uh, it's pretty I'm jealous. We need some here. <laughs> Colorado. I don't know if I've, I would say I've seen it green like this before, but it's very rare for it to be this green. It's absolutely breathtaking right now. Oh, I can so. imagine. Everything's brown here and I'm not used to that. Oh, it's no. usually the other way around. <laughs> so That is so sad. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there's always time for it to turn around, right? There is for sure. Yeah. Hopefully some rain tonight actually coming. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. You'll have to let me know. Okay. So first question on the docket that we ask all of our guests is what's in your freezer? Yeah. So um, not much is in my freezer right now. Um, I have some venison left over um, and my dad makes an amazing trail bologna. So I have that saved in there. Um, But otherwise some frozen blueberries and some frozen bananas for banana bread, but that's about it. That sounds fantastic. Uh, tell me a little bit about this trail bologna. I am unfamiliar. Oh, um, so yeah, my dad has this really good recipe. He uh, combines a bunch of, um, I think he's got like pheasant in there and venison and obviously some like pork fat and stuff to hold it all together. Um, and then he smokes it for a really long time and then you like pan fry it and it's just amazing. 
That sounds fantastic. Is this a family recipe or is this something that uh, you're willing to share? Uh, it's not a family recipe. So, I mean, I could definitely share it with you in the future, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, just something that he found on either online. I think it's, he just found like a spice packet kind of thing. And, um, yeah, it's, like I said, everyone loves it and (laughs) he brings it everywhere as like, uh, and passes it around. So he's very proud of it. It's his token, like token party favor. (laughs) It really is. Yes. (laughs) That's, that's great. Okay. Tell us a little bit about who you are, who you are, what you do, where you're from. Sure. Um, So I am from Wisconsin and I would just say that I'm an independent girl who really loves nature and music, Um, being with my family and friends. I love fly fishing um, and I just have a curiosity to always learn and be open to new experiences Um, And that's led me to really gravitate towards working on Wisconsin's ecosystems. Um, So like I've always had a passion for the outdoors. And I think that really developed even more by going to Trout Unlimited when I was younger with my dad and learning how to fly fish from him. Um, And then I decided to go to school for land restoration at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. And after I graduated, I found a job in the Madison area as a restoration tech. And I'm still with that same company today, but as a project manager now. And I think being with my company really made me realize what an incredible special place Wisconsin is. And there's so much that people overlook about the state. And so it's been a real privilege to be able to work on some of these rare ecosystems and also bring fire back to the landscape again. Tell me, tell me a little more about these ecosystems, which, you know, what do, what gambit do they run in Wisconsin and which one's your favorite in particular? Sure. Um, So to go back a little bit, Wisconsin is divided by a tension zone, it's called. So it's basically like a climatic gradient of like boreal forests to the north. Um, So that's a combination of a lot of pine trees and Um, like red oaks and also species like loons and grouse are up there. Um, And then in the southern portion of the state, it's more of a prairie and oak savanna type ecosystem. Um, And so you can really see this distinction when you're driving from the south to the north. Um, And so... Because of this, I think oak savannas are my favorite ecosystem. It's where what we work on most of the time. Um, it's also one of the rarest ecosystems in the world. So we're pretty uh, in a good spot to help restore some of these areas. Um, it's also in the heart of the Driftless region, which um, the Driftless region is it's in Wisconsin, but it's also part a little bit part of uh, Minnesota the eastern part of um, Iowa and the the northern tip of Illinois. But during the last glacial period, it's where um, 10,000 years ago is where glaciers didn't touch this point. So there's a lot of like ancient, um, you know, a lot of different ecosystems that you will not find anywhere else and old um, rolling hills where the rest of the state, it's, you know, majority of it's pretty flat. Um, so it definitely stands out. And 
also home to a ton of trout streams. Um, I, I believe Wisconsin leads, leads the nation in miles of high class one trout, class one quality trout streams. Um, it's like 3,500 miles or something like that. So it's, it's pretty cool. We, I live in a great spot. <laughs> Are trout your favorite species to, to fly fish for? Or, I mean, yeah, I guess what, which type of trout do you love yeah, most? And, um, and also, this is really fascinating. <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs> That's great. No, um, yeah, there's there's a lot here. So yeah, trout, um, you know, brown trout are here. We have brook trout, which brook trout, are, I think, are our only native species. Brown trout are not from the States at all, actually. They're native to Germany um, and, yeah, that area. So um, I would say brook trout are my favorite because of that. Um, and they are also in these like really tight little streams that are hard to fish at times. And so it just makes them more of a challenge and they're just, they're just beautiful. I agree. I think pursuing trout is a lot of fun. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about these oak savannas. What can you describe them? Um, what are some of the plants and like flora and fauna that exists there and what makes them so unique? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times in oak savannas, they are these massive, um, I mean, they're probably like 300 or so year old oak trees that are usually bur oak and white oak, um, mostly bur oak. Um, but they are very almost picturesque and like park. Like if you imagine like the lower branches of an oak tree, just expand, stand extending really wide um where they have just a ton of open space to grow and their branches are just like limitless um that that's that's how these oak trees look and then in the understory it's more of um just unique prairie vegetation so um we have you know rattlesnake master and um goldenrod species and lead plants and um big blue stem little blue stem just a ton of variety of prairie plants in the yeah in the understory so they're they're just really cool almost like park like i would say so that's why it's um so different from other places and it's why it really needs fire to sustain um, because of the prairie plants and stuff there. That's fantastic. Um, on a side note, I I think I shared on one of our previous episodes that I'm transitioning my entire backyard to native plants in Colorado and I, not all native plants, but some xeric plants. And, um, I came across lead plants and I think those are, I think they're so fantastic and so I finally have my first lead plant and I planted it last week so that's pretty happy about that that's so cool it's very exciting yeah they're Um, one of my favorites too (laughs) yeah tell well tell me I guess if you don't mind elaborating on that oh sure your expertise on it oh man I have I have so many favorite plants um but yeah I think I, I love Rattlesnake Master. It's in the yucca family. So that one's pretty, it doesn't look like it belongs here. Um, we have uh, prickly pear cacti here. So that one's one of my favorites. 
Um, there's, oh gosh, um, Pacoon is a really beautiful one and Bird's Foot Violets. Um, yeah, I don't know. All of them just, oh, uh, I really love the, the Silphium family too. So um, that's um, Compass Plant and Prairie Docks. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's so many. <laughs> it's hard to choose. <laughs> I think it's it's fascinating. I you know, A lot of these species that you're talking about, I associate with Western landscapes. And so it's really interesting to hear, to try and put my mind in Wisconsin and, act, and think about it from, yeah, that landscape. So <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of overlap um, between uh, Wisconsin and other other and prairie plants in general throughout the the country. So uh, yeah, it is it is unique and it's different. Very cool. Tell me about these prescribed burns. How much burning did you do this year? And yeah, what what did they look like? Yeah. Um, well, burning. Let's see. We we did over. I think 110, 120 burns as a company this year. Um, and that varies from, I mean, we have a lot of projects in Madison area, so that's a lot more small little like prairie establishments and rain gardens. Um, but then we also have like larger burns that we do a lot of like, we have a conservancy called Riverland Conservancy that's pretty close by um, that, you know, it's a few hundred acres that we burn there every every year and like rotate um, areas that we burn throughout the property. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends on where we're at. And it's every everything from the Oak Savannah ecosystems, like I talked about, to uh, prairie plants or just prairies and um wetlands. Um, sometimes it's some oak woodland areas. So yeah, it's, it's all over and um, really depends on uh, the client that we have or yeah, the area of Wisconsin that we're in. <laughs> of course. For our listeners, what does, I guess, what is the significance of having prescribed fire? What what value and benefit does it bring to the land? I'm glad you asked that question because there's um, a lot of value that comes with prescribed fire. Um, it is the best management tool we have to conserve these ecosystems where we're able to impact the most amount of acres in a short amount of time. Um, there's certain vegetation and trees that have adapted and that need fire to survive. So uh, plants like jack pine, for an example, um, their cones won't open until fire comes through and opens it for them. Um, and, you know, there's longleaf pines in Florida that have adapted to it and prairie vegetation has all adapted to fire. So they, they need it to, to be here. Um, also, prescribed fire helps with uh, fuel reduction um, and when I'm talking about fuel reduction, that's more so, um, like the buildup of leaves and grass fuels and just plant vegetation in general, along with, uh, like dead trees and stuff like that. Um, so it, 
it burns away slowly all that material. So when we come back and do it again, it's going to be less intense in the future. Um, then it also returns nutrients back to the soil. It increases diversity in uh, species and plants. Um, it's also amazing for a wildlife habitat, specifically like white-tailed deer, for an example. And uh, also insects and disease control, um, invasive plant control, like literally any, anything. Um, <laughs> fire really benefits or helps us with um, for managing these lands. With white-tailed deer in Wisconsin and other game species, what I guess are there any specific? Is there any specific value to to having that prescribed fire for them. So I, I was actually listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago um, from the University of Florida, and they were talking about how they're seeing a decrease in overall ticks um, affecting white-tailed deer mm-hmm. with prescribed burns, which I thought was, I think it's fascinating. So <laughs> arthropods yeah. are fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that's true. Cause a lot of ticks, they really like dense leaf litter and they really like, um, a lot like grassy material. And so, uh, if you burn that consistently, you'll have, yeah, less ticks for a home that they, um, are found in and stuff. And yeah, going back to the deer, the white-tailed deer, um, the reason why they benefit specifically from burning is, um, mostly for, like when, when deer browse and stuff, they, and there's the, they get rid of the ground layer of vegetation and they start working their way up. So when you burn, it restarts the seed bank again and brings up fresh vegetation, um, at a ground level. So it's more foraging opportunities for them. That's easier. Um, so that's why you see more increases in deer and it's why indigenous people burn the land to begin with, because, it would bring an abundance of um, and, and deer back to their hunting grounds. Right. What about um, waterfowl and maybe upland birds? What does it look like for, what do prescribed burns look like for them? I would say more so um, like, so when we do burns in like wetland areas and stuff like that, uh, we try to burn like early so the nesting isn't effective, uh, isn't um, affected at all for um, for them and stuff. And so I think, you know, I'm not, I haven't really like studied a ton about like waterfowl and birds in particular, but I know like specifically for grassland birds, like who need that prairie vegetation you know, it keeps all of the the woody species out of the grassland areas for them. Um, And it helps, you know, bring food and insect life that, you know, they eat uh, back to, you know, being more abundant for them. So I think that right there is definitely a big positive. Otherwise, I'm not I'm not really sure what else it it benefits from, they benefit from burning. No, I, I yeah, I, I agree with you. I um, did a little bit of prescribed fire down in Florida. I think I shared that with you when we previously yeah. spoke. Yeah, um, you did. 
I, I would still consider myself very much a novice, but uh, <laughs> I just, I find all of this stuff really intriguing because of how much it affects an ecosystem, right? From insects to flora to invasive species to, you know, larger game species to, yeah, overall like ecosystem integrity. I just, I, yeah, fire, fire is a really awesome thing. So, <laughs> it is really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of people have concerns with them affecting um, really a multitude of species, like either chasing them out or causing, I don't know, some sort of harm or a decrease in their population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you mentioned that you try to burn at a time that, uh, at a time where they're not breeding. Um, mm-hmm. What is that time frame? What and which times do you typically avoid? So we mostly, so if we're, again, if we're trying to burn like wetland areas, for example, we'll try to burn that like really early in the season. Um, so their nests aren't affected or anything like that. And that's usually in Wisconsin, our burn time is anywhere from uh, March to like early May. So there's a very short window and then we might have a shorter window sometime in the fall. It's usually maybe at the most like two weeks um, or so come November, maybe beginning of December kind of thing if we don't have any snow. Um, So yeah, there's a a very short window to get all these in. Um, But yeah, we try to be very mindful of what animals that we're um, we're affecting and, you know, animals, animals too have adapted with fire throughout, you know, the years. And, you know, they, they know, um, instinctively that, you know, they, they can't be around, um, a burn area. And we are very, when we're burning around the perimeter, we're very cautious and take our time for the most part. So the animals can escape and, you know, you know, go in um, to hiding holes that are like deep under the ground. So they're not going to, you know, die at all. But yeah, there's, again, there's a multiple different ways that we do those things. And whether it's lighting, um, you know, 20 feet off a water edge. So uh, reptiles have a, a chance to go into the water that's right next to it or um, burning uh our prairies are um, our goat prairies and stuff we call them um, where rattlesnakes reside we burn those really early in the season when there's still snow on the ground and the rattlesnakes haven't come out of hibernation yet so yeah there's a, there's a lot of things that we try to do to help them out <laughs> I, I think that's great so I know your bread and butter is fly fishing. Mm-hmm. I am curious, have you, do you notice a difference in the streams, right? Do you have to pay any additional attention when you are laying fire on the ground? Um, for like, I know you said you spent, you're always 20 feet off the mm-hmm. water, but what, what effects does a prescribed burn have on water? That is a great question. Um, so prescribed burning, um, definitely helps, um, with 
the uh, quantity of water. Um, so if you're removing, like, if you're burning through, like, the thick shrubs and overgrown vegetation that are sometimes, like, right next to water, um, there, when you get rid of those plants, those shrubs and stuff, that's uh, fewer plants that are absorbing the water. So then streams are fuller, and that also benefits other plants and animals. And it also helps maintain even clean drinking water. So it reduces the amount of moisture that evaporates from plants into the air. And um, so, yeah, this increases the quantity and improvement of the water soaking into the ground. So and it replenishes all the aquifers and stuff like that. So it, it does a lot, too, for water quality. Yet again, why I prescribe burning is necessary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I am a huge fan. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and hear from our partners, and we'll be right back. Proas believes women hunt hard and deserve the gear to support their hunting and outdoor passions. What sets Proas apart is our belief that women require performance outdoor gear for all of their hunting and field pursuits. Their layering systems are quite technical, but philosophically simple. Optimal base layers, prime insulation layers, and durable shell layers to stop wind and water. Take pride in not being one of the guys. And we're back. And again, I am here with Jaden Heronica, and we are talking prescribed fire. Jaden, you've really given me a full scope on the ecosystems that you burn what you enjoy about it, the species that you affect. I would love to hear what does a day-to-day, -day, what, what does your day-to-day -day look like? So on a burn day, what, when you show up to work, what does that look like? Um, a little bit chaotic, I would say. Um, so first of all, in the morning, we're getting all the burn plans and maps and stuff ready for the crews. We're writing out lists of equipments that, equipment that we need um, for the specific site we're burning. And then it's, we have uh, engines, um, you know, our trucks that have a full um, tank and pump on it. And so we have to fill all those up and fill all of our ATV pumps and, uh, water tanks up and um, get all of our uh, equipment as far as our rakes and brooms and flappers um, and then our radios that we need for communication on the line and then we all hook up all the trailers and head to the site. What does the planning look like before you get to that point? So the, maybe the day before, how much time do you spend yeah, reviewing the size of the burn mm -hmm. and um, where you're going to burn, which areas you anticipate are going to be challenging. What does that look like? Yeah, so um, when we're planning, um, let's say a client, you know, is like, I'm interested in prescribed burning on our property. Um, so we'll do an initial site visit and well, they'll be like, this is the area that I want burn. Sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it's a little bit more complex um, and a lot more acreage than others. So we see what we need to do as far as establishing fire breaks. 
Um, so either mowing them or if it's in a woodland, we can like leaf blow day of, or sometimes it involves uh, taking out chainsaws and uh, clearing the area like way beforehand, like the winter before we, we burn. Um, so it, yeah, it depends on where we are, we are going, but then once we have all that information, we have to create the burn plan and the management plan. So the burn plan is, you know, everything from the site location to what wind direction that we need for the specific site to what are hazards in the area that we need to be or in the unit that we need to be mindful of to, um, you know, hospital directions. And then we have to make all the maps on um, QGIS. And so it's, yeah, and make out points on all the maps so we know where we are and we can talk over the radio like, hey, I'm at drop point Bravo B. So um, this is this is where I am. And hopefully we'll meet up in the in a good spot and close out the unit in a safe way. So yeah, there's a there's a lot involved with planning out these things. And it takes a lot of time and dedication. And we're very fortunate to have a, a great knowledgeable crew to be able to, um, to, to do these. I'm sure. And I, I mean, even from a safety standpoint, it's important to have folks that are educated and invested and can communicate effectively so that you don't have any, yeah, I, I guess negative events occur. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, things happen. It's, it can be a, a scary thing at times and sometimes things happen that you don't expect um which is why you know with this job you're you're always learning and always trying to adapt and adapt and you have to think quickly um so it keeps you on your toes <laughs> yeah absolutely and yeah i mean you i i suppose with it sounds to me like you do primarily low intensity fires um, getting them out of that really low intensity space makes them quite a bit more risky. Um, have you done a lot of higher risk fires or prescribed burns, like where you are intentionally torching canopies, or do you usually stick with something that's a little bit more low key? We usually stick with things that are more low key. Um, there are times when, you know, let's say we're closing out the unit where we're going with the, the fires going with the wind then, and that creates its own head fire. You know, that's very, usually very intense at the, at the last part, but for the most part, we are working towards um, doing low intensity fire and little, we call it doing dot ignition or sometimes like line, like flanking strip ignition, so um, dotting around trees that are um, are dot or like have uh, cat faces in them. So areas of the tree that are um, are dead at the base or kind of like up at top where we know this tree is going to be a hazard to us to remove. So we're more mindful of like either raking around it before we light it or putting um, a little bit of fire right next to it and watching it so it won't like get that tree going so we don't have a more of an issue later. So it's we're const, constantly trying to uh, mitigate those issues because um, 
And two, at the end of each burn, depending on the size, we have to have um, all of our fires have to be 100% out. And there's there is a if the fire is you know we've done some some burns that are like 600 acres or so, um, and obviously that one you can't put everything out that we just lit in a in a day's time. So we put out the edges, the perimeter of the the unit um pretty much up to 100 feet and then we have someone stay the night to watch the fire um and to make sure it doesn't get out of hand and stuff like that that's awesome yes i um, my first couple burns that i went out on we had we had quite a number of spot fires just kind of leaving the boundary and that was (laughs) you know, I, I think when you're so new to it, it, everything is an adrenaline rush and nerve wracking. Um, but mm-hmm. seeing those right when you're working fire suppression, those spot fires are a little bit more, the consequences are far higher if you're not, um, engaged on, yeah. Uh, on putting them out immediately. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. have you done any suppression work? Yeah, uh, a lot. Yeah, we, as a company, we do quite a bit of training and stuff before, um, you know, to, to help their crews and to make sure we all understand how to, um, yeah, put out these if in case of an escape or a spot fire. Like, this is what we have to do to handle the situation. And... Um, it's usually, uh, we have an anchor point, so that's usually where the fire starts and it's, we go up a flank and then we pinch it off. So we turn it down around the head fire, um, to cut it off towards, uh, a trail or towards water or whatever we have. Um, or sometimes we have to go up both of the flanks and put out the head fire together. So yeah, it depends. Um, there's been only been one instance where, I had to deal with an actual wildfire that was like close to our unit. And that was a complete fluke. Um, And we just so happened to, like I said, to be burning in the area. And then we had to respond to this wildfire. (laughs) So, yeah. Man. And, and were you, is burn boss the proper terminology? Were you the burn boss for the day? Yeah. Burn boss is the proper term, but no, I was not. It was, um, the actual boss of the company, <laughs> uh, my boss, um, he was burn boss for that one. And yeah, that was, it was a crazy experience. It, it just so happened the fire started, the wildfire started right next to our prescribed burn sign too. So no one was calling it in and yeah, it was very freaky, but I think it ended up burning like 78 acres or something like that. Um, which isn't isn't big, right. but it's big for Wisconsin, <laughs> right? Well, well, and I mean, what does the how close is that to homes, and what yeah, what did that look like from a yeah. threat standpoint for urban areas? Like, yeah, really um, luckily there was there wasn't too many homes. There was a barn, and there was one house off of the road, and my crew ended up putting out that line before. Um, before the dozer and stuff came from the DNR and everything. So we protected around the house and protected around the barn as much as we could. And then um, the volunteer firefighters and everything came in and the DNR and every, and dozed around the house for to protect it. So luckily we were there to, 
That's all I can say. <laughs> yes, very, very fortunate. Tell me a little bit about um, your, so what are the certifications that you need to get into this prescribed fire or fire suppression um, from a wildland standpoint? And I would love to hear your story as you're sharing it with us of like, how long did it take you to get these things? What did you have to do? What was it like? (laughs) Sure. Um, So to burn anywhere, pretty much, you have to have your S-130, S-190 course. Um, So it's usually like a four-day course or so. And uh, some some universities um, offer them, uh, and yeah, they're they're interesting. Some of them uh, they're pretty long and draining, but um, no, they're still very useful. Um, mostly mostly useful for wildland firefighters, but again, for prescribed fighter for prescribed firefighters, anything that we do it can become an incident. It can become a wildfire if we're not careful. So taking these classes are really important in case something does get out of hand, that we have the the tools and knowledge to be able to handle it along with like the education background. Um, so for that, I think they're really important. Um, but yeah, so S-130, S-190 is your for- first course. And then you can take ignitions, um, and I think there's like two other classes, there's a the weather class that you can take. So you're looking at, um, you know, cloud patterns and trying to decide if a front's coming in kind of thing, which is really interesting. Um, and then it's your, um, I'm forgetting what it's called specifically, but then it's your class that you can take to become a burn boss. So starting out, it's probably like four classes and there's some intermixed that until you can take your burn boss class and all of them are again, like four days long. Um, and then if you want to get into wildland, wildland firefighting, um, all you have to do is take a pack test which we're not required as prescribed burners to take a pack test, but um, they are. I didn't realize that. I thought everybody had to take the pack test. No, no. Luckily, uh, we, we don't have to. I think the, the Nature Conservancy here in Wisconsin will make you do that, but not, not us independent contract companies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I guess I did get mine through the Nature Conservancy, so that mm. makes sense down yep. in Florida. So. Interesting. And, and then what's after the burn boss certification? What does, what does maybe a career similar to yours, does it require more than being a burn boss or what, what does that, yeah. What does that look like? Um, for prescribed burning? No, we don't really have any um, classes or, you know, a reason to take more than just our burn boss certification class. Um, there's like some, like burn boss, like leadership courses that you could take. Um, but it's, again, it's not really a requirement. It's only like, if you really want to, um, and they're usually pretty far away and a lot of money. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, after, 
after your burn boss, it's more so just gaining the experience. Um, and that in itself takes way longer than the class as well. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this for almost five years and there's still so much I don't know about fire. It's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's an entire discipline on its own, right? And to be a practitioner is only a small component of it. Having the background knowledge and the ecological knowledge and 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 pulling that all together it is a lot. It's people dedicate their whole lives to it, which is so cool. Absolutely. I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily we've got a good foundation here in Wisconsin. I mean, we've had people like Aldo Leopold, for an example, pave the way here. So it's the reason why I think um, it is like people really realize how important it is from him being here. So, yeah. Very neat. Well, thanks. Thanks for enlightening us on the prescribed fire front. I, yeah. I've been wanting to, I know we're just slightly past the season now, but Actually, are you doing any more fire fires right now? Are you laying any more fire down? No, we're not doing any more fire right now. Um, okay. But again, come come fall, like November, um, we might get a few few weeks in um, where we can do some more burning. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about. I I feel like we really just focused hard on on the prescribed fire front, which I really enjoyed listening to you. Um, I would love to learn more about you. What other things, tell us a little bit more about yourself and tell us about, you know, some of the things that keep you in Wisconsin, some of the things that bring you out to fly fish, um, and, and keep you really in a conservation field. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's the reason why I stay in Wisconsin is just because of, you know, again, it was, I always say Wisconsin is more of like the subtle beauty. It's not in your face at all. It's just, it's just, uh, there. And, um, I know I, I really just appreciate that. It, it feels very at home to me and I love being able to go visit places like out West and stuff like that, but to have like a place like this where I have, hundreds of miles of streams to access. Um, like that's, that's pretty hard to, hard to beat, um, along with, you know, a career that's, uh, very dedicated and, um, yeah, just, just here for the right reasons. Um, so I think, yeah, those are the things that keep me in Wisconsin. Um, but as far as everything else, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, again, I just, I grew up around nature and stuff like that. And it's, I feel like it's just in my blood, <laughs> so to speak. It's, you know, something I, I just don't know anything different. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful to have that solid thing in my life. Of course. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I think it's, you know, anytime things are, I get stressed or frustrated, nature seems to continuously ground me. It's really fantastic to just go bomb a dirt road and then hike off (laughs) into, into the middle of nowhere. And just to, 
I think experience the vastness of what nature has to offer Mm -hmm. and, and how, I don't know, not, not minor your, I think it puts things in perspective, I guess is what I'm trying to say is that like, you're, you're just a component of the, the larger system, um, which I think is. Yeah. It it humbles you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Grounding, humbling. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's when, when you say that, like I can, I can picture Wisconsin, like it isn't just like, yeah, it, it's just discreet. It's, mm-hmm. it brings out, it, it's just lovely. It's just a very lovely place. The Midwest is always a place that is surprising, I think. So it I is, don't know, but yeah. every, I've, I've had the opportunity to live in a number of different areas and you can find something extraordinary about each one of them. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, while I choose to live out West right now, I, I have a lot of appreciation for other places in in the States. Yeah, that's very cool. So I, so I, I'm curious, what other things do you do, right? You, it's, what other things do you do for fun um, outside of work? I feel like your work <laughs> and um, off work time probably overlap a little bit with, with regards to your interests. Um, what, what things do you do when you head home after a, maybe a long day of burning or what do you do in the off season? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I do a variety of things outside, obviously. So a lot of just kayaking and, um, a lot of hiking. Um, I really love music and reading and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm always going to a concert or something somewhere. And luckily that I live pretty close to Madison and Milwaukee. So it's, it's very easy to go find shows anywhere. Um, and yeah, otherwise I live pretty simple life. I really just enjoy being with my family and some friends here and there and just, uh, yeah, just taking it easy. Campfires and, (laughs) you know, ice fishing and all those things. It's just, yeah. Things where you're fully immersed and fully present is what, yeah. it, is what it sounds like. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you and, and learning about you. Um, as we come to a close, we talk about what our hits and misses are, um, for the week. And, um, I guess I have to, so since we don't have a co-host, um, I guess I will have to go first in, in this case. And, um, yeah, I've got, I guess I have a lot of things in the hopper. I haven't quite actually, okay, here's my miss for the week. Here's my miss for the season. Uh, turkey season closed a couple of days ago and mm-hmm. here in Colorado and, uh, I did not get a turkey, so I'm oh, going to have man. to go ahead and give it a try next spring. <laughs> um, so that's my miss. But have you? What have you been aiming for? How did it go? And how did it go? Um. So yeah, this week I this was my first full week back from vacation. So I would say my miss was 
it was mostly just trying to get caught up with everything. And I'm in this, um, I've been a project manager for a little bit now, but I recently just got a bunch of more uh, responsibility as far as sites being handed down to me. So um, it's just been a week of trying to balance um, all these sites and all these extra responsibilities that I have, plus being still being out in the field with my crew. And so, uh, yeah, this, that's been a, that's been a challenge, but it's a good learning, um, opportunity. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, trying to find that nice level of where you can actually be in the field, do those things and also be in that manager role is, mm-hmm. uh, it's quite the needle to thread. So, <laughs> so I wish you the best of luck in that. I, I, there's a couple of people I feel like that have perfected it and they've written an awful lot of books about it. I'm not there yet. So someday, someday. Well, we'll both work towards it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So awesome. Well, thank you again for sharing. Um, and did you have anything else that you wanted to, um, share with the Artemis podcast listeners today? Uh, no, not that I can think of other than, um, yeah, I think it's just really important to uh, learn about the ecosystems that you have in your neighborhood and uh, try to see if uh, prescribed fire would be a good fit for it. And because um, I think burning is definitely the a way we can really help our, our future with, you know, wildfires and everything like that. So, um, yeah, that would be my only thing. Thanks. Well, thanks, Jaden. Um, I appreciate you joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week and until next time, be bold, stay curious and get outside. Mm-hmm.